How do you want to talk this in? Um, it's overrated okay. and too easily used. I believe. I think that love is a four-letter word. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kurt Vonnegut said, "If somebody says I love you to me, I feel as though I had a pistol pointed at my head. What could anybody reply under such conditions?" But that which the pistol holder requires, I love you too. I think it's a word that is used too frequently, and I blame how fetishized our society is around love. Little girls grow up on fairy tales and all the princesses, and they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. It's a very unrealistic template to give young developing minds, and then they spend the rest of their lives wondering why things aren't working out like these fairy tales and movies that we are raised on. Real life isn't like fairy tales. And we want escapism from real life, which is why we watch movies and read fairy tales in the first place. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there is no happily ever after. There is not. Things just keep going. There's little moments of happily ever after, but life never ends. There's never that fade to black and that feeling of completeness because you always wake up the next day and everything's the same, and you need to get dressed and clean yourself and eat and do the dishes and mow the lawn and make money. And it just keeps going and going and going and going. Happily ever after is so the movie can come to an end and you can put the book down. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dirty Talk Podcast. This is Chris. And this is Rain. <laughs> if you can't tell already, I think we are both kind of cynics. Oh, no, no, no. I uh, utterly disagree. I'm not a cynic. You're not a cynic. I'm a realist. Okay, so you're realistically a cynic. I'm a realist. You're okay. I, I, I get where you're coming from, though, because I think we're both kind of on the same page with things. That I'm a very realistic individual, yes. When it comes to love. Um, I would say that neither you nor I are super mushy gushy, unrealistic types when it comes to love. That's correct. Not necessarily at all, no. If you haven't guessed it already, today we are going to be exploring love in all its facets. Yes, history and cynical love. <laughs> is it well, cynical? It's cynical. I thought it was realistic. I'm, uh, I'm only saying it our as touch witty of banter. Right. Welcome to our exploration of love. of love. Before we get going, as always, we need to take care of the housekeeping business. And that is letting you guys know if you have any questions for us, if you ever want to call in and say anything, leave a weird, wacky message. If you have any ideas for future podcasts or subjects that you want us to cover, Go ahead and give us a call at our call-in line, and that number is 614-733-4739. Which is also known as 614-R-DeGray. That is 614-R-D-E-G-R-E-Y. Ready to get messy with some love? So messy. Let's do it.
What's that they say about love and marriage? That it goes together like a horse and carriage? And that you can't have one without the other? Mm-hmm. Surely love and marriage are two things that would naturally go hand in hand, am I right? That's assumed. Usually two people fall in love and they decide they want to be together for the rest of their lives. One of them proposes and then they spend a lot of money getting all their family and friends together to get up in front of them and say, hey, we are going to spend the rest of our lives together. They eat a bunch of food and then people are required to buy them things like knives and towels. Any links between love and matrimony are relatively recent. Throughout most of human history, love was not at all the point of marriage. Most of human history. Okay. Marriage was about getting families united together, which is why there were so many restrictions and rules and regulations around the entire institution. Couples wed to make political alliances, to raise capital to expand the workforce, and for a whole array of practical purposes. Marriage was actually essential for day-to-day -day survival, for reproduction, and for social acceptance. People occasionally fell in love, but that was not what marriage was about. It was literally a miniature business between two people. For thousands of years, spouses were fellow workmates. They struggled together, they produced food, they made clothing, they made shelter, they made kids to help them, but it was a business arrangement. The notion that a couple would marry for love was considered almost antisocial, even subversive. Parents could disown their children for having the audacity to marry for love. Marriage was for doing what your parents told you to do and creating a successful economic base to get you through life. At best, you might expect some tranquil affection for your partner. Hopefully they didn't beat you. In China, excessive love between a husband and wife was seen as a threat to the solidarity of the extended family. Parents could actually force a son to divorce his wife if her behavior or work habits didn't please them. And if a son's romantic attachment to his wife rivaled his parents' claim to the couple's time and labor, the parents could force them to divorce and send her back to her family. Imagine being divorced from your husband because the two of you loved each other too much. In the Chinese language, the word for love did not traditionally apply to feelings between husband and wife. The word they had for love was used to describe an illicit, socially disapproved relationship. In ancient India, falling in love before marriage was seen as a disruptive act. The Greeks thought that lovesickness was a type of insanity. Love sickness? Being, being in love with someone. <laughs> You're inflicted by... I'm it's, sorry, sir, you have a terminal case of the love. When people are in love, it is a time of heightened emotions, and as good as you can feel, you could feel sick from love. Hence the term lovesick. Right. In the Middle Ages, the French defined love as derangement of the mind. And they said the cure for being in love with your mind being deranged was sexual intercourse. Okay, so... You're in love. 
And so you are obviously sick. insane. Yeah, right. But the cure is going out and fucking. Correct. Yeah, well. It breaks the fever. It's like it, taking aspirin. I, I understand it because it's like it's like being on the rebound. Some people say once you get over a bad relationship, you just go out and get busy and that just washes the other person right out your mind. Right, that's what the French were saying. <laughs> you go French. Yeah, it's like you, you, you have the infection of love and you lance that boil by having sex. And here's the thing, the cure for it didn't have to even be the person you were in love with. Another cure for it was to have sex with someone else because that would break the spell of lovesickness. Yeah, go out, get some strange, and, right. and you'll be fine. That's the doctor. Sorry, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. My doctor wrote me a note. Uh, <laughs> I need I need to get a little action just to get so I feel better. Got to get up for work in the morning. Fever. Yeah, yeah. I got a I got a fever. <laughs> it's not cowbell. <laughs> it's love. You know what? I I have a feeling that sexual intercourse is the answer to a lot of things for the French. Oh, <laughs> that's true. That's true. It, it is a, a cure-all. Catholic and Protestant theologians argued that husbands and wives who loved each other too much were committing the sin of idolatry. Wives were chided for using endearing nicknames for their husbands because such a familiarity on a wife's part undermined the husband's authority and the awe that his wife should feel for him. You mean she wasn't calling him sir? How <laughs> dare she? There's nothing that undermines a husband's sacred authority like his spouse calling him sweet cheeks. Love muffin. Yeah, yeah. Then you, you, then you don't worship your husband like the god of the house he's supposed to be. Yeah, respecting him for his manliness. After thousands of years of marriage being essentially a business arrangement, emotions be damned, Things started to change. Can you guess why? Um, was it? Interestingly enough, it was the Industrial Revolution. That is what changed the Institute of Marriage, to what we have today. Starting at around 1850, the Industrial Revolution increased efficiency enough that more people could meet their low-level needs without needing to be married. Because that's what marriage was, was meeting someone else and being like, hey, man, do you want to team up together and see what we can possibly do to get through this life? Sure, whatever, let's make this work. You go out and plow the fields and I'll sew the socks. Right. Yep. For the first time ever, personal fulfillment became a primary goal of marriage. Spouses went from workmates to soulmates. Mm -hmm. These days, most people marry for love, not to secure property or because their parents had arranged the best possible alliance. The radical concept of caring for your spouse as a person is a relatively new one and we have the industrial revolution to thank for it wait i have to take an active interest in the people i'm romantically engaged with correct god damn you industrial <laughs> revolution that's all it took to change the entire history of human marriage increased automation 
and factories. Factories. And black lung. Uh, factories and black lung changed <laughs> how we approached marriage. So the next time that you tell your spouse that you love them, remember that the ancient Greeks would think that you were literally insane. And then go snuggle their face off because the ancient Greeks were not right about many things, even if they were pretty good with statues. They caught the fever. Yes, the fever, and there is a cure. <laughs> cowbell. Yes, yes, the cure is cowbell. Guess what? I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. You brought up the concept of soulmates in your last piece. I did. And thanks to the Industrial Revolution, people are now marrying for love. Now that we don't have to go work the fields all day long, we have so much more free time, thanks to all our new modern conveniences, that we can spend all that time pursuing our one true love, our soulmate. This sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Oh, so wonderful. The idea is compelling. Each one of us has a missing half that will complete us, make us feel whole, and bring everlasting fulfillment to our lives. All we have to do is go out into the world and we'll know them at first sight. Two of you will forever be entwined in passion and love and the relationship will effortlessly grow with new heights of contented bliss. <sighs> Sounds great, doesn't it? So great. You know that the uh, belief in the idea of soulmates goes a long way back. It didn't necessarily start at the Industrial Revolution. Do you know how far back it went? No, how far back? It went all the way back to the Greeks, who you so kindly let us know thought love was some sort of infection or disease. <laughs> you want to hear the story? I do want to hear the story. Lay it on me. In Plato's Symposium, Aristophanes posits that long ago, there were three genders, male, female, and the androgynous. Each person was actually two people. They were twice what they are now. They were essentially round balls that had four hands, four legs, two heads, two sets of genitals, and so on and so forth. They could move both forward and backward and would run by spinning themselves around cartwheel-like on all eight limbs. So you can imagine two people back to back just cartwheeling around the earth. The males were descended from the sun. The females were descended from the earth. And those who were androgynous were descended from the moon. These humans, if we want to call them that, were actually quite powerful as well. They were so powerful that the gods were nervous over their dominion. These humans attempted to raid Mount Olympus and made threatening attacks on the gods. The gods didn't really know what to do about these uppity humans, and they considered destroying them, but if they did destroy them, then they would no longer 
have the sacrifices that the humans made to them. So these vain gods really didn't want to get rid of them because they just wanted the stuff, right? Zeus, all-powerful and all-knowing, came up with a brilliant idea. He would cut each person in half, thereby creating two humans where there had once been only one. This would also benefit the gods because there would now be twice as many people to make them offerings. As he cut each person in two, he ordered Apollo to turn their heads and necks around so that they would be facing toward the gash that had been made while separating them. This was to remind them constantly of the punishment that they had been dealt by daring to challenge the gods. Apollo, after doing this, pulled their skin tight to cover up this gash and smoothed their rounded bodies, leaving only their navels as evidence of the wound. Now separate, people kept trying to find their other half and reunite with it. As Aristophanes put it, Each one longed for its other half, and so they would throw their arms around each other, weaving themselves together, wanting to grow together. Unfortunately, these new people wanted to do nothing but embrace one another. Eventually, they started dying of hunger or from general inactivity. They pretty much didn't do anything but hold on to each other and try and squeeze each other tight. Get them back together. Zeus took pity on them, seeing the general malaise that they were experiencing. And he decided to move their genitals around so that they would be facing frontward. This way, when they embraced, they could have sexual intercourse and... Those who were formerly androgynous could reproduce because the androgynous ones, there were half women, half man, and now they had a woman and a man. When they found their other half, they could now reproduce. And even two men who came together could at least have sexual satisfaction and then move on to other things like work. This was also the posited origin for homosexuals and lesbians because the males had two males so the two males would come together and find each other and the females had two females they would come together and find each other mm. and the androgynous ones were the heterosexuals that would come together and oh. find their other half okay previous to zeus moving their genitals to the other side of their body so they could copulate the severed humans cast seed and made children not in one another, but in the ground like cicadas. <laughs> Essentially, they would just be going around and men would be throwing seed out from their backsides because <laughs> they couldn't see their dicks back there and they would just be dropping in the ground and people would spring up from the earth. But now that their genitals were facing the right way, they could get together and have sex and reproduce. <laughs> like humans are intended to. So people's heads and genitals had to be shifted around. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, that, that seems reasonable. And according to Aristophanes, that is where we are left today. 
as he put it. Love is born into every human being. It calls back to the halves of our original nature together. It tries to make one out of two and heal the wound of human nature. Each of us, then, is a matching half of a human whole, and each of us is always seeking the half that matches him. Do you believe in soulmates? No, not really. Well, then that puts you in the minority. Well, I'm usually in the minority with things. Mm-hmm. According to a 2011 Marist poll, nearly three in four Americans believe in the idea of a soulmate. Mm. Surprisingly, more men believe in the idea than women. Hmm. 74% versus 71% respectively. Interestingly, the younger you are, the more likely you are to believe in the soulmate concept. 80% of those under the age of 30 believe in it, 78% of those 30 to 44, and 65% of those 60 and older believe in soulmates. So people wise up as they get older. Yeah. Basically, this tells me that the older you get, the more hardened you become and cynical to the idea of finding the one. No, the more realistic you become. So you become more of a realist Mm -hmm. because you've gone through your life and this person hasn't landed in your lap. There's no one person. There's a multitude of people. I believe that you can really, really care for someone, but one person, your perfect puzzle piece out there on the planet, that's the one. Uh, Math would be against you. If soulmates are even a real thing with 8 billion people on the planet, what if your soulmate's born on the other side? All right, let's do the math. Hmm. In his book... What If? Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions, former NASA programming and roboticist Randall Monroe tackles the question, What if everyone actually had only one soulmate, a random person somewhere in the world? He starts off by establishing the criteria that your soulmate is chosen randomly at birth. You don't know anything about who or where they are. But you will instantly recognize each other the moment your eyes meet. Okay. Let's assume your soulmate lives at the exact same time as you. Because there's no guarantee that they could have been born 100 years ago or might be born 100 years in the future. So we're just going to assume that they live during the same time period. And... To keep things from getting creepy, we're going to assume that they are within a few years of your age. So you don't have some 100-year-old falling in love with some 9-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. But you were soulmates. Right. With this restriction, most of us would have a good pool of around half a billion potential matches. In our scenario, you wouldn't know anything about who your soulmate was until you looked into their eyes. Everybody would have only one orientation, which is towards their soulmate. The odds on running into your soulmate would be incredibly small. The number of strangers we make eye contact with each day 
can vary from almost no one, basically people that never leave their houses. Yes, like you over there, I see you raising your hand. Basically shut-ins and people that live in small towns and only have a very small social circle. Mm-hmm. And then there are people that come in contact with thousands of people every day, like somebody who is a vendor in Times Square or a policeman that is constantly interacting with society. Mm-hmm. Let's suppose you lock eyes with a stranger, an average of a few dozen times each day. If 10% of them are close to your age, that would be around 50,000 people in your lifetime. Given that you have 500 million potential soulmates out there in the world, this means you would find your true love, your soulmate, only in one out of every 10,000 lifetimes. It's almost like the concept of soulmates is not a realistic one. It's pretty much mathematically against you. Even if this person was out there in the world, being able to stumble upon them is mathematically close to impossible. Right. So, unfortunately, the soulmate math doesn't really work out in our favor. But are there benefits in carrying around this notion that there is a definitive the one? I would not see the benefits. What would the benefits be? No, there are no benefits. That's what I thought, yeah. But a lot of psychologists think it's actually detrimental to hold on to this idea of the one. I agree with them. In a 1998 study by Dr. Raymond Nee at the University of Houston, he found that people fall into one of two belief categories. The destiny believers who they think I am destined to be with a specific person. I have a soulmate. I have one person who is meant for me. And there are the growth believers. They think that relationships progress slowly and we grow to fit together. Relationships take effort. You can build love. What he found by studying the romantic relationships of these two groups is that People who believe in soulmates are more likely to break up, give up, and have difficult relationships. Not surprised at all. As behavioral investigator Vanessa Van Edwards puts it, this is the soulmate trap. If you believe that there is only one person for you, you are more likely to spend energy and time looking for that person instead of cultivating existing relationships. Mm, okay. Destiny believers have passionate, intense, fiery, short-term relationships, but oftentimes become disillusioned and frustrated when something inevitably goes wrong. They believe in deal-breakers and are constantly looking for the perfect person. They often view compromise as settling. When something negative happens in the relationship, they think, Better move on and find my person. On the flip side of it, growth believers take a bit longer to commit. Even early in the relationship, they are more motivated to find solutions, compromise, or explore new ideas. They often view compromising as growth. When something negative happens in the relationship, they think, better work this out. 
it's odd to me that so many people believe in this idea that is both almost mathematically impossible and detrimental to your relationships. Is there somebody out there for you? Quite possibly. I don't know. But in a world of over 7 billion people, odds are that you can probably find one or two that you can get along with. At least a few, a handful. But like everything else, it will take effort and commitment, not just to find the person, but to keep the relationship working after you do. You know my feelings about effort. Yes. Previously on Dirty Talk After After Hours. hours. Yeah, you ready for this final volley? I'm ready. Let's let's do do it. All right, hunker down. Oh shit, it looks like they're regrouping. Ah! What are they doing over there? Oh crap! Ah! Incoming! After Hours, available exclusively on Patreon every Monday morning. If you do want to get access to the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast, you can get it in one of two ways. You can follow Rain DeGray on Patreon at patreon.com backslash Rain DeGray. You have to type it out exactly. I'm not searchable because I'm naughty. She has been blacklisted. She's in the adult ghetto. I'm a bad, bad girl. Or you can head on over to our brand spanking new shiny Dirty Talk podcast Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash Dirty Talk podcast. Either way, if you pledge at $5 a month, you will get exclusive weekly access to the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast. We've covered the idea of love and marriage. We have. We've covered the notion of having a soulmate we did and even though having that information i think people are still going to be out there looking for the one person to make them whole people do do that because love is such a strong driving force that it is 
that it makes you stupid. And irrational. But it has also contributed to the arts. Oh, that's a fact. In a way that nothing else has. Since humans first attempted to express themselves creatively, love has been at the forefront of art. Correct. Now, you know me, and I try to stay away from absolutes. Right. But it is impossible to count all the songs, poems, paintings, books, and plays dedicated to the topic of love. These desperate artistic attempts to capture love are either evangelizing its glory and overwhelming euphoric effect or cursing its biting, bitter, soul-shredding pain of loss or unrequited infatuation. Love has this way of bringing out both the highest compassion and heroic selflessness imaginable and also compels us towards the vilest, murderous acts. How many people have killed out of passion for love or because the person they love didn't love them back? Too many to count, man. Too many to count. Falling in love is intense. It's a roller coaster ride of all the senses. It changes the way we perceive time, the workings of the world around us, it makes us giddy, rapturous, and pain free. If it seems like you're on a drug, it's because literally you are. Say what? MRI scans of people that are currently in the throes of new love are nearly identical to those of people high on cocaine. (laughs) No way. Seriously? Yep. Other neurochemicals that are released when you find this new love also mimic the effects of strong opioids like morphine. Join me now in pulling back the layers of the brain that are at the core of falling in love and the process we go through along the way. Let's start at the beginning. That's a good place to start. The moment of exposure. Our Weird World is proud to present the biological mating dance of the terrestrial human. traditional social gathering during which the two evaluate the other attendees as suitable potential matches. From across the room, they see each other, and the mating dance has begun. Everything starts with the eyes. The first thing they notice about their potential partner is their symmetry. Universally, there is one thing across all cultures that people find to be attractive. I know different cultures have different standards of beauty, but this transcends all times and all cultures. Um, the face? It has to do with the face. 
Symmetry. Symmetry. Okay. So before we go any further, I'd, let me introduce you so people know who you are. This is my friend Reagan. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell people what you're all about. Cool. Um, I'm Reagan. I am currently getting my doctorate in physical therapy up in the Bay Area. And for undergrad, I was down in San Diego, and my degree is in behavioral neuroscience. And that's why I wanted to talk to you, because I know that you really love interesting brain stuff. And I, I love thought that you all would things really about the it. brain. Exactly. Exactly. You're kind of a brain geek like me. Symmetry tells us a lot about people, and this is why everybody considers a symmetrical person to be attractive, is because if, if somebody is asymmetric, it tells us that there could be genetic mutation or mm -hmm. some sort of disease or environmental pressure. Usually when there's malnutrition or anything like that that happens, it affects the person's development and their symmetry. And there's been a lot of research done into this. One of the guys that has been researching symmetry and attraction in humans is this guy, Randy Thornhill, at the University of New Mexico. Mm. What he does is he scans people's faces and bodies into a computer, and he comes up with a symmetrical ratio based on how symmetrical they all are. So it's not even based mm. on somebody's physical comparison of them. The computer is like, okay, this is how symmetrical they are, and here's their ratio number. And when they've shown these pictures to both males and females, they always rate the more symmetrically inclined people as more attractive. Just because they're symmetrical. Just because they're symmetrical. That's so interesting. Primarily what we're initially attracted to, the process we go through, is trying to find somebody that is genetically ideal for mating. Right. So That's all what it's this all goes, about. yeah, this all goes back thousands of years because all we were looking for is like, I need somebody with healthy genes to pass on to my offspring right. so they can have healthy genes and they have a greater chance of survival. Mm -hmm. So here's where it gets really interesting though, is beyond just appearing symmetrical, this guy, Randy Thornhill, has found that symmetrical males smell better. Yeah. Like women, actually smell better or like pheromones smell better? Actually smell better. Even if the woman hasn't seen them. In one study, he, he took the used clothing of uh -huh. highly symmetrical men and unsymmetrical men, and they gave it to women to smell. And then the women were asked for their impression of the person based on the smell of this used piece of clothing. And across the board, that the females found the scent of the symmetrical male to be more attractive and desirable. Without especially, even seeing them. And without even seeing them. And especially what? if they were currently menstruating, then they found it yeah. even to be more pleasurable. Impregnate me, symmetrical Basically, male. That's yeah, amazing. Like, oh, my God, I can smell his super <laughs> symmetricality. Smell the testosterone. That's crazy. Jeez. So even if you're like bottom rung, not the most attractive, if you're symmetrical, you're going to be like base level four or five because you're symmetrical. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to probably raise, raise your attractiveness significantly if you're symmetrical. Yeah. Part of his research is that he found that males with a higher degree of symmetry also have had a lot more sexual partners. 
than the lower symmetrical males. And you know, that makes sense because I remember hearing one time that Brad Pitt is the ideally symmetrical fake. I think I remember <laughs> And so, I mean, this Brad all makes Pitt. sense. <laughs> Well, you can find out your own level of symmetry by taking a photo of your face and slicing it down the center and then making two copies of it, mirror imaging it, and then putting the two sides Uh together. But the more similar the faces look, it means the more symmetrical you are. And you can judge your attractiveness based on how identical the two portraits are. The two are. I have to do that this weekend. (laughs) I want to see the results. Yes. After viewing each other from a distance and deciding that the other's outward appearance signals positive potential mate status, they begin to move closer so the second stage of courtship can begin. Hey, what's up? Hi, how are you? At this point, their brains have started pumping out no epinephrine, activating their sympathetic nervous system. So the first chemical that interacts with your brain when you find somebody attractive and you start talking to them, you know what that is. First chemical? Yeah. So you start you start talking to somebody and you start getting the butterflies in your stomach. Adrenaline? Well, norepinephrine. Sure. Yeah. Adrenaline. Also called also called noradrenaline, right? Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. You know what norepinephrine essentially does to your body norepinephrine i mean it's an excitatory molecule yeah it works on your sympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. basically it mobilizes your brain and your body for action it's, it's yeah. what ignites your fight or flight response right so in the brain the norepinephrine it increases arousal and alertness it promotes vigilance so you're you could either stand your ground or really start running away Mm-hmm. Most importantly, though, it enhances formation and retrieval of memories. Oh, norepinephrine. Yeah, which, which makes sense because when something traumatic happens and your brain starts getting flooded with norepinephrine in this fight-or-flight response, you remember every one of those traumatic incidents because you, right. you learn from it. And this is one of the reasons that people seem to remember the moment they first met their partner is because all this no norepinephrine way. is pumping into your brain. Yeah. There's other oh reasons, too, which I'll get to in a little bit. But that's, that's one of it, because it fully activates, I think it's the uh, hippocampus is the, the point of your memory creation, right, the memory storage. Yeah, it's all jacked up on norepinephrine. It's going to remember what song was playing and what shirt she had on and what exactly. food was on your plate at that second. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it also completely focuses your attention and gives you that tunnel vision Mm -hmm. because you need to be able to focus exclusively on what's in front of you. Right. Especially if if you're in danger, if you're attacked by a wild animal, everything else goes (laughs) into the background. (laughs) Yeah, you're just, you know, focused on this thing that's right in front of you. And in this case, when you meet somebody hot and you're chatting them up and you're in the club and you feel those butterflies and, and it raises your level of anxiety because you're yeah. you're kind of uncertain and but you're hopeful and your norepinephrine <laughs> is pumping your memory is soaking Trang. everything in right <laughs> it also triggers the release of glucose into your blood for energy so you start feeling uh-huh. that surge of energy and it increases blood flow to your skeletal muscles so that you can move so you feel yep. just alert and on edge and taking everything in totally and 
it also inhibits your bladder and your bowels. So yeah, at that yeah, moment, totally. <laughs> exactly, because that's the worst thing at that moment that you meet somebody hot and all of a sudden your brain's being flooded by these chemicals. You don't want to suddenly piss your yourself. Exactly. Oh, that's not terrible, terrible first impression. It's not because the problem is is that the other person's norepinephrine is hitting their brain, and they're going to remember every single moment of that. Oh God. Yeah. As the effects of norepinephrine kick in, their pupils dilate, creating a sort of tunnel vision for the potential pair. They focus exclusively on the person in front of them and the rest of the world fades into the background. It warps their sense of time, stretching out every moment, and causes their memory creation to jump into overdrive. I noticed your potential symmetry from across the room. I thought I'd come over for a closer evaluation. Well, you're not too asymmetrical yourself. In fact, you smell really symmetric. Now that they're close enough to this potential romantic partner, their olfactory system kicks in. Smell plays a key role in attraction and mate selection for Homo sapiens. The second thing you notice about somebody when you get close enough to them and you begin talking to them is their body odor. Yes. Studies have shown that females have ranked body odor as more important for attraction than looks. I don't know if you agree with that. Really? I mean, it's yeah. important. I don't know if uh-huh. I've ever made that decision, but I might have to agree with that. Well, because you can get you close can to somebody. You can overlook a funky nose, but if somebody stinks. <laughs> you got to hang out next right? to them all the time, especially yeah. if you start getting intimate and you can't stand uh, their smell, then God. that just ruins it for you. Can't happen. So one of the main things that contribute to if you find somebody's smell attractive or not is MHC. What's that? Have you heard of, have you heard of MHC before? Uh-uh. So the MHC stands for Major Histocompatibility Complex. These okay. genes in your body that are essential to your immune system. And mm-hmm. your body emits different odors based on the genes that you have in your MHC. Interesting. Yeah, that's like histamines are part of your the allergies. Yeah, because you have certain immunities to certain diseases and right. uh, certain genetics. The signaling is going on there. And what research has found is that women, this primarily acts on women, men don't really react to the woman's MHC. I think men are just willing to go around and say, hey, <laughs> I'll put it in you. Okay, let's, let's mate. But particularly for, for women, they uh-huh. prefer the smell of a man whose MHC is different from their own. Well, that's good, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It means you got different genes. You're not going to make babies with four arms. Well, it's not. It's not that. It's that they have complementary immune systems to yours. So, so they have their immune systems have immunity to things that your immune system that doesn't. You so the more different, have. yeah. So the more Amazing. different your immune system is from this the guy, the your baby could be. Exactly, because the offspring is going to mm-hmm. have a tolerance to a lot more diseases. Oh, my goodness. So all this is just going on your brain. It's completely subliminal. You have no idea, but you're smelling this. And if you smell a guy, I'm sure you've been up next to a guy, and you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> this guy smells really good, right? I have had such an incident, yes. 
you're probably smelling his MHC genes and your brain is saying, whoa, this guy has completely different MHC from me. We should make some babies. That's even happening on a conscious level for me, but that's incredible. (laughs) Another explanation for, for the MHC, for women being attracted to men with different MHC, is that it inhibits inbreeding. Right. Because right? you have to have differing genes yeah. to be attracted so, to them, right? That, yeah, that's why like the smell of your siblings aren't going to necessarily be sexually attractive to you because right. they are going to have roughly the same NHC as you do. Totally. That's what I mean. That's so, a good thing. So you're not attracted to people that you're going to make a weird baby with. Yeah, exactly. So you're not going to have incest and then get all the birth defects that come along with incest. Mm-hmm. So cool. It's like a built-in incest blocker. However. That's good. <laughs> however, there's always a however, right? Always. They found that women that are on the pill. Oh, no. Start having more of a preference for men with similar MHCs. No! The pill is, like, <laughs> such a bummer in so uh-huh. many areas. On the male side, there's been studies conducted that men can detect when a woman is at peak ovulation, just on smell. No way. On smell? Yeah. By smell. And they give off a different scent depending on what part of their cycle they're in. The research done at the University of Texas at Austin looked into these pheromone signalings. So they had a group of women wear T-shirts to bed every night at uh-huh. different times in their cycle. So for, for, for pile women, but they had them wear them throughout their cycle because you you needed to isolate between is it just this woman that smells good to men? So they gave the men the same shirt of the same women. They didn't tell them this, but they had the shirts marked as like, okay, she was uh, ovulating here, she wasn't ovulating here, but it was different right. women just to mix it up because you always need to do a double-blind control. They gave the shirts to the men to smell, and overwhelmingly, the men judged the shirts worn by the fertile females to be more pleasant and sexy. That's incredible. So this is other pheromone signaling. So even if you're with somebody, maybe it makes you hornier right before their period so that you have a better Uh chance of conceiving. Being a female and having studied this kind of stuff, I know for a fact that during ovulation, right before a woman has her actual period, the horniness level is, like, off the charts. And so it's it's on both sides. Like, during ovulation, Uh male and females want to make babies. And it's on different levels. That's so cool. It's our genetic imperative. Uh Uh-huh. That's what we – that's the only goal. That's all we have to do. Yeah, yeah, we're animals and we're just responding to these same things that other animals would be responding to in the wild. So with the t-shirt study where the males smelled the females' t-shirts and they found the the ovulating women to be super sexy, they tested their saliva and they found that their saliva had heightened levels of testosterone after smelling the women's shirts. So they were getting ready to go. Yeah, yeah. So this is what's cueing them. They they smelled it. They smelled like, oh, man, she's ripe. And the testosterone kicks in. They're like, I'm going to make a baby. 
That's I so know. cool. It's an immediate response. That's amazing. You smell really good, too. Like you may be at peak ovulation. Now that you're closer, I can smell that you have a complementary immune system to mine. That's really hot. At this point, the two have assessed each other's aesthetic and smell, and have determined that they are indeed highly potential mate material. The gonads of both begin producing heightened levels of testosterone, increasing their respective states of arousal. The two have agreed to move forward with mating. First sexual contact between the two usually takes the form of pressing their mouths together. This is an important step because the taste of the prospective mate signals additional information of their genetic fitness and is the final signal needed to further this mating dance. Many humans have reported that their previous attraction to a potential partner has dissipated if this step goes poorly. God, you taste like you have really healthy genes. Oh, yeah. Mm. The two have found the other's taste to be pleasing and acceptable. Their hypothalamus begins producing large amounts of dopamine. So you're, you're out, you find this guy, he's highly symmetrical, you smell him, he's got some great MHC. And, and he's chatting you, you up. Well, he's chatting you up. He's also got a good personality, too. And, oh. and so he's talking to you. He's making you laugh because they found that men that make women laugh are more likely to be successful in Agreed. mating with them, right? You you find men totally. that make you laugh more attractive. <laughs> yeah. You guys have found yourself in a dark space. You're kissing, and your body starts releasing testosterone to make you horny, and it makes him horny as well. Mm-hmm. And then the big guns start kicking in. Oh, no. Dopamine. Dopamine. Oh, love it. <laughs> that's, that's what it's all choice. about. That's, that's what, what it's it, well, all about. Yeah, and so the dopamine is hitting your nucleus accumbens, right? Mm-hmm. You know about the nucleus accumbens, I'm sure. Just hammering it during that moment, I'm sure, during the yeah. minute. For those who don't know, the nucleus accumbens is the reward center of your brain. And it's very it, it's, influential. Dopamine just hits it, like you said, like a hammer. And it, pretty much every addictive drug, that's what it does, is mm-hmm. it releases the flood of dopamine into the nucleus accumbens, and your brain is saying, holy shit, this feels good. More, 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 I need more. more of this. Yeah. Uh, the, the the more powerfully addictive the narcotic, the the faster and more reliable it puts dopamine into the brain. So everything from nicotine to heroin, that's what it's doing. It makes you feel good. It takes away pain. It makes you feel euphoric. It's basically that's that's the thing in your brain that you're reacting to when you do any pleasurable thing. Totally. I remember hearing about this study, can't remember exactly where it was, but they starved and dehydrated these rats and then they made them, I forget how, but they, I think they made them like super horny somehow with like testosterone injections, these male rats. And they put them in the cages with these like ovulating rats, female rats, 
tons of food, tons of water, everything, but they showed them this lever that they could press and there was an electrode in their brain and it was connected to that reward system and they ignored the food and water and ripe females and they just sat and you would not believe how fast they were hitting this lever just to activate the Oh, because that little dopamine bonk. hit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you just sit there and you do it forever. It's the same thing behind uh, slot machines. You're, you're essentially exactly. sitting there pulling that lever for a little dopamine hit because there's the exactly. excitement, the anticipation, like, could it be this time? Could it be this time? Could it, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. pay off, and then you get that dopamine flood, and then you hit there, and it's just it's the same thing as those rats hitting the lever. You're just like, oh, come on, yes. is this? Yes, there it is, there it is. It's just yes. everything you do, everything you do yes. is just for that dopamine hit. Exactly. I think there's a lot of studies going on right now regarding the reward system and how it's influencing a lot of human behavior and there's I mean it's one of the most powerful systems in the brain it's so difficult to override it oh yeah because it's your brain signaling saying hey there's more of I this I like this like, yeah 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 and, and you can't argue with your brain when your brain is saying no you're doing no. this thing and that's why <laughs> people feel compelled that's why that's the whole source of addiction is that you're compelled exactly to do any it. kind of addiction it, that's what it is oh, oh yeah, yeah and that's, that's how it's also communicating to you when you're when you're making out with this person and you're getting these dopamine hits. It's saying, "Hey, this is good. You should keep doing this, or maybe even mm-hmm. go further." And that's what what progresses on when you're when you're starting to get into the throes of passion. Get it on. Got it. Mm-hmm. Currently, the couple's brains are signaling that this is a very rewarding activity, as it continues to increase the dopamine flow as they progress further into the mating act. The two have left the social gathering and have found a quiet place to finish the mating ritual by attempting to stimulate one another's sexual organs to the point of climax. Upon climax, their brains produce another flood of dopamine as well as a surge of oxytocin. The next thing that starts working on your brain is the oxytocin. Oxytocin, love chemical. They found that the levels of oxytocin in your body skyrocket at orgasm. Mm -hmm. So those who don't know that, you know, oxytocin is referred to as the cuddle hormone. It's kind of like a cocaine in a way where it makes you want to be outgoing. And they found that the people with high levels of just general oxytocin are more socially interactive. And you develop it and you get hits of it when you're around people you like. It's, it's released into a nursing mother's bloodstream to bond with their children. I was just going to say that. It bonds you to this person. Women respond to oxytocin a lot faster than men. Because the testosterone in men, the higher levels of testosterone in men, actually block the oxytocin. Oh. So this is why a lot of times women, when they have sex with a guy, I don't want to stereotype here, but they'll have sex (laughs) with a guy and they orgasm, they get this huge rush of oxytocin, and then they become infatuated with this person. Right. Men need the cuddling right after. Yeah, yeah. Men are usually able to kind of do this and then move on because they do feel that hit of oxytocin, but it's not as strong as the female's hit of oxytocin. 
It's muted by their testosterone. That is so interesting. Biochemistry is bonkers. But then what happens wow. with the man is that they've done studies with men that are married and in long-term relationships. And when you get married or enter a long-term relationship, your testosterone levels start declining when you're in the relationship. Oh. You're still getting that hit from the oxytocin. And you, that's when men start bonding stronger is when they get into a longer-term relationship. Their testosterone goes down. It doesn't block the oxytocin as much. And then they start having this attachment and wanting to bond more with the other person. Wow. That's so interesting how it's the same process happening, but it's just at different times because of interfering chemicals. Part of, part of the... Uh, Theory there is that possibly when they're in the longer-term relationships, that's when they actually start having the offspring. So mm-hmm. the testosterone levels decline. It makes them not want to wander as much. They have these lower right. levels of testosterone. They're not as horny. They're not, yeah, they're not going to look at other babies. The oxytocin starts kicking in, and then they're going to stick around, and they'll raise the offspring and become bonded to the offspring and the mother of the child. So... Cool. All right. So what I'm gathering from that is you just have to get over that hurdle. (laughs) (laughs) Convince them to stay long enough to get past that hurdle and you're in the clear. Feed them some testosterone-lowering food. Exactly. uh, These oxytocin receptors are found all over your brain, and they have been found to decrease pain when you have large amounts of oxytocin. They bind, they bind to the opioid receptors and they stimulate the endogenous opioid release in the brain. Mm-hmm. It also lowers serum cortisol and okay. produces a calming effect. So the cortisol is the stress hormone. Right. So you get high levels of cortisol when you're under stress and you're, mm-hmm. you know, all these things are going bad. So that's why you start bonding to this person once you start mating with them, you get these hits of oxytocin from having sex, you get all the dopamine and it's lowering your stress. You're feeling wide awake because every time you see them, you're still getting these norepinephrine hits. You're getting the dopamine hits and you're getting these oxytocin hits. So it's like every major drug combination you can think of all happening blasting at once. You. Yeah, Gosh, no blasting you. Yeah. No wonder it's such a thing. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. The two have now paired and continue to interact with each other on a regular basis. I really look forward to seeing you. Whenever I think about it, it always activates my reward center. I know, me too. Each time their brains reproduce this process, as well as decreasing their serotonin levels. The final thing that's happening is your serotonin levels. Once you start getting into the beginning of the relationship, your serotonin levels drop. Drop. Serotonin levels drop, and they found that the serotonin levels of people that are newly in love, because all these things are happening during the initial stages of courtship, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that that what they call the the honeymoon phase, and everything's great, and you're feeling like you're on top of the world, and you're seeing the world through the rose-colored glasses, and everything's wonderful, and you're happy, and all you can do is think about the person. And the reason why is because your serotonin levels have dropped to the point where OCD people have their serotonin levels. Mm. 
So you become completely infatuated with this other person. Right. And this lower serotonin also means that you don't need as much sleep and it reduces your appetite. Oh, my gosh. So you're like fiending for this other person. Yeah. So your brain is, Whoa. and your part of it is that your brain is saying, we want more of that dopamine, we want more of that oxytocin, we want more of this, all this other stuff, because the norepinephrine yeah. and the noradrenaline, that's addictive too, because it makes you feel awake and alive, and you're like, oh, okay, that's the, the thrill you get, like, when you go on a roller coaster, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what you're on, is this roller coaster ride of love, and your brain's pumping out all these chemicals, dropping these serotonin levels, saying, no, you're fixated on this person, because this is what we want. We want more of that. We're addicted. It's a drug. And now you're in love. And now you're in love forever. In some cases, one or the other decides that this individual is not an ideal mate, as previously thought, and chooses to withdraw and dissolve the mating pair bond. I'm sorry. I just feel like my initial reaction to your positive mate signaling was flawed. I think we should evaluate other potential mate bonds. This is followed by a sharp decrease in the previously high levels of neurotransmitters in the brain, and one or both of the two lapse into a state identical to narcotic withdrawal. I'm going to read you some symptoms here, and I want you to to, to tell me if you've ever experienced any of these. Difficulty concentrating. Yes. Slowed thinking. Usual. This is after you've been in a relationship (laughs) and it's gone sour, right? You've broken up with a person. Mm -hmm. Slowed activity or physical fatigue after activity. Oh, yeah. Exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Restlessness. Yes. Inability to experience sexual arousal. Oh, no. Yes. Inability to feel pleasure. Uh-huh. Depression or anxiety. Oh, yeah. Suicidal thoughts or actions. No, but I can imagine. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you haven't gone there. <laughs> Vivid, unpleasant dreams or nightmares. Yeah, yeah. And other physical symptoms like chills, tremors, muscle aches, nerve pain? Uh, achy. I remember that with the exhaustion, just general yuckness. And increased appetite. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It's like you withdrawal symptoms, right? What I just read to you are actually the symptoms of cocaine withdrawal. Oh. And what they found when they did MRIs (laughs) with people that were newly in love but then were rejected by the other person, they've done MRIs, is that their brains are reacting in the same way as somebody who's going through cocaine withdrawal. No shit. Yeah. So all those, that whole list of stuff wasn't people in the, in the throes of a breakup. It was actually somebody withdrawing from cocaine. But it's the exact same thing in your brain. Holy smokes. That's why we that get so addicted list, to it. I mean, I, I could, like, remember my big breakup. Like, it, that whole list was entirely accurate. Yeah, because you're going through the same process. Oh, my God. It's all and chemical. So reason, everything. Yes, it's, everything is chemical. Everything. Our brains control everything. You can't argue with your brain, like I said. No. These symptoms often drive the two back together to relieve the discomfort they are experiencing. The absence of the neural chemicals that my brain produced based on your proximity was agonizing. Let's never forego those chemical rewards again. 
However, they often find that their initial assessment was correct and sever the relationship again, only to relive the same negative symptoms and then attempt to reconnect again, creating a vicious cycle. This whole process is why oftentimes people will break up and then get back together because you're just like eating for a drug because <laughs> you know the only real. thing the only thing that's going to give you that fix is that other person. Oh my gosh. So, so you get back that together and you feel the yeah, but I mean, but you've you've seen that before the bad breakup. You know this relationship's going to work. You start feeding, you're jonesing, you're like, oh, maybe I'll just hang mm-hmm. out with them one time. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you drunk drunk dial them after some crazy night. And you're like, hey, something's happened, and then you feel good again. Your body's like, yes, I'm getting my I'm getting yes, my yes, hit. Yes. I'm getting my hit. Uh-huh. And then you're like, oh, this person's awful for me, and you keep going back and forth. But you try and separate, but your brain is saying, nope, this this person. What about no, no, this no. person? You remember this person? <laughs> yeah. In other pair bonds, the initial effects of this first meeting begin to fade as their brains habituate to the other individual and begins to release lower amounts of dopamine and norepinephrine during their continued interactions. This leaves one or the other now feeling dissatisfied with the pair bond and, like a junkie searching for a fix, causes them to seek out new potential mates to experience the heightened initial state of interaction, colloquially referred to as new relationship energy by some human individuals. I just don't have the reward feedback that I used to have from your presence. It's really weakened as I've become habituated to you. I'm going to explore other pair bonds to see if I can reactivate my reward center. (sighs) The final thing that happens with a lot of people is that with anything, you become habituated to the chemicals Ah, and you uh don't get them as hard. And that's why that honeymoon period starts settling down is because you become accustomed to the person right? and you're not getting as much dopamine, your serotonin Mm -hmm. levels mellow out. You can concentrate on other things again. You're not getting that butterfly in the stomach, norepinephrine, you're getting the, the oxytocin, but it only levels to keep you bonded to the person. You're not getting that super pain-relieving opioid effect from it anymore. Right. And that's why a lot of people will break up at that point because they're thinking to themselves, do I still like, love this, this person? <laughs> yeah. Because your brain's like, okay, yeah, this is cool. It's just like if you keep doing heroin every day, eventually you're not going to get as high as the first time and everybody's right. trying to chase that first time. Conversely, like everybody always talks about and remembers so vividly their first love because it's that first hit, that first taste of that quote-unquote drug yeah. combo. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. It's always free the first time. <laughs> and then you got to pay. you got to pay after that. Smack. Exactly. But a lot of people will get in and out of relationships chasing that high because mm. it's like trying a new drug this person's not paying off anymore maybe this person over here is oh yeah now i'm getting paid off i'm getting the norepinephrine hits mm-hmm. uh, dopamine hits all the same thing over and over again but since people are equating this experience to love and once it starts fading just because it's a natural reaction to your brain just to stop reacting as strongly to a new stimulus because as human beings, we crave novelty. Right. That's when people start having arguments. They break up and they say, oh, maybe I'm not meant for you. I'm going to find somebody else and ride that ride again. So it seems like there's that fine line between you want to keep some of that 
chemical process happening, you know, stay in that happy zone, but then also recognizing our our ability as humans, our our brains and our bodies are incredibly good at normalizing or, like you said, habituating different processes and levels and things. And so it seems like there's that sweet spot for successful relationships where your body naturally habituates, but then there's still that level of chemical romance, if you will. Yeah. What it is is, is not getting in a rut. Usually, because that's right. what you get distracted with is by the day to day. I got to do the laundry, mm-hmm. uh, go out and do the dishes, whatever. Making the effort to bring some sort of novelty. You don't have to be, you know, dressing up as clowns or, <laughs> or dolphins or whatever you're into, right? But just, just how do you know? Something. <laughs> I, I, I saw that rubber blowhole you've been leaving around. Oh no. <laughs> But that's what I got for you. I appreciate you taking the time to talk. Yeah, that was so interesting. I got to look up some of this stuff. That was cool. Hopefully uh, everybody else that listened will find it interesting as well. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, giving up your time to chat and have me throw all this brain (laughs) neurochemicals at it. But now you understand what's going on in your brain as well at all all those points. Some people find it to be unromantic. So, like, you're just bringing it all down to, like, base. Like, what about the person? What about the experience? I was like, well, that's just why you're having it. This has why? nothing to do with anything else except for your brain is releasing chemicals. hormones and chemicals. It's all chemistry. Hey, everyone. This is Rain DeGray. If you want to keep tabs on me and check out all the cool stuff I'm doing, you can head on over to my website, com, and while you're there, sign up for my newsletter so that you and I can stay in touch. And if you are on Twitter, check me out at either Rain DeGray or the Dirty Talk cast. Dirty Talk podcast has a new Twitter. Just search Twitter for Dirty Talk podcast or add us at Dirty Talk cast. Oot. It isn't like the good old days, you know. What isn't like the good old days? Back in the good old days, people were nice to each other. Were they? Polite to your neighbor. Of course, yes. People Civil. People lost the, the civility that we once had. The internet came along and ruined everything. Trolling. It allowed the deepest, darkest parts of humanity to operate unchecked behind anonymity. The curtain was pulled back and people's lowest most foul tendencies could flourish. That information superhighway was a highway to ruin. Yeah. Except, uh, not really. Um, what do you mean, how so? People have always been rude jerks to each other. You mean people have always been assholes? That didn't somehow suddenly change with the advent of the internet. Surprised face over here. May I present Exhibit A, Vinegar Valentine's. What, pray tell, is a vinegar valentine? I'm so glad you asked. A vinegar valentine is the opposite of a Valentine's Day card. Given on or around Valentine's Day and sent anonymously, they are decorated with an unflattering caricature and an insulting poem. The caricature in the poem is about the type of person that is the recipient of the card. Whether it's a spinster, a a floozy, a scholar, a sales clerk, there was something for everyone. 
They enjoyed popularity for over a hundred years, but their heyday was in the Victorian era. Vinegar Valentines were launched in the 1840s. Compared to better constructed Valentine's Day cards, Vinegar Valentines were much more cheaply made. They were usually printed on one side of a single sheet of paper, and they only cost a penny. Later on, they were made in the form of postcards as well. To add insult to injury, when they were first launched, the receiver, not the sender, was the person responsible for the cost of postage. So imagine, if you will, waiting by the mailbox on Valentine's Day, hoping, fingers crossed, for someone to declare their love to you. And after eagerly paying the postage due, you open it to discover it was sent by an anonymous person trolling you. Hmm. No internet needed. Anonymously insulting people you didn't like was so popular that for a while, sales between regular Valentine's and Vinegar Valentine's Day cards were actually equally split. Hmm. That's how much people like insulting other people anonymously. Well, they still love insulting other people anonymously. Yeah, no, it's a deep part of human nature. These cards could be so vicious that sometimes postmasters confiscated them as vile enough they were considered unfit to be mailed. A Chicago post office once refused to deliver 25,000 Valentine's Day cards on the basis they were too nasty to send. Good thing that USPS is looking out for our feels. Supposedly, there could be real danger around these cards. In 1885, London's Gazette reported that a husband shot his estranged wife in the neck after receiving a vinegar valentine that he could tell was from her. In doing research for this piece, I came across multiple references of people committing suicide after receiving an insulting vinegar valentine that encouraged them to kill themselves. Here's the thing, though. The more that we work on this podcast and the more I get into researching, the more I realize that you can't go off a single line. There actually has to be a primary source. And I found reference after reference of a suicide. But with the husband shooting his wife in the neck, that happened in 1885 and it was reported in a newspaper. Mm. And then on all the research I found for these supposed suicides, they would first quote the husband shooting the wife in the neck. And then they would say, and suicides. Um, I couldn't get anything more than and suicides on top of the one case they have of a woman getting shot. So research says and suicides. I can't find anything concrete other than that one line. And it really amazes me when you go down the research rabbit hole where one line just keeps stacking on top of each other and there is never anything more concrete. Oh, yeah. I've done that so many times myself where I'll find this piece that references this other piece and that piece references this piece and it's just a, essentially a feedback loop of oh right. this person said this thing yeah and eventually it's repeated enough times that it becomes a true i am saying that there's a possibility that's where this suicide thing comes from even though i couldn't find any actual cards that encourage suicide you also have to realize that people aren't going to keep that if you received a note in the mail from an anonymous source encouraging you to kill yourself, you probably wouldn't save that note in a keepsake box. 
There seemed to be a rude card for every occasion, from anonymously insulting sales clerks that were considered too snooty to the customers, to spinsters, drunks, doctors, bachelors, old maids, dandies, flirts, bald men, suffragettes, penny pinchers, even down to the mailmen that were delivering the cards. That's correct, you could send a vinegar valentine, and if the mailman looked down, the card was actually insulting him. Hmm. Right, that's, people. That's, that's a new level of. People really were into anonymously insulting people. Each of these cards that went out to various types of people to be insulted had poems that were included with them. And examples were. Oh, here's one Old Maid. Tis all in vain your simpering looks, you never can incline. With all your bustles, stays and curls to find a valentine. So you're home, you don't, you're, you're single, you're not getting any, and someone's like, it doesn't matter how much you try and put glitter on it, you can't polish up a turd. Basically, that's what they're saying to the old maid. Mm, can't put lipstick on that big. Nope. They had uh, one for a sales lady. As you wait upon the women with disgust upon your face, the way you snap and mark at them, one would think you own the place. So if you had to go somewhere and the lady behind the counter was rude to you, you could just wait all year and then you could send her a nasty anonymous card for Valentine's Day saying you suck as a sales clerk. But she would have no idea at what point she did that. These also seem like they're a little bit more polite than the insults thrown around today. Yes, there is a certain, you know, veneer of civility. They have an elegance to them. We need the rhyme structure. This leads me to realize that if I insult people, if I insult them in rhyme, it's much more biting. (laughs) That could be one takeaway. To a suffragette valentine. Those damn uppity suffragettes. Your vote from me you will not get. I do not want a preaching suffragette. So cruel, these people, my... An issue of Kindergarten Primary Magazine from 1895 worried about the moral implications of these cards for children, saying that it was a teacher's duty to do what they could to help make it a day for kind remembrance rather than a day for wrecking revenge. Much like with Halloween, as we discussed in our Halloween episode, the holiday had to be steered towards more positive channels. With the rising cost of mail and Valentine's Day celebrations being shifted to more elaborate things like dinners and flowers and chocolate, vinegar valentines began to fade out after enjoying over a century of popularity. There was, however, a brief resurgence in the 1970s for vinegar valentines. Can you guess why? Um, sexual revolution. No, it was to insult hippies. Oh, same thing. (laughs) So after the not getting popular for a while, they're like, wait, wait, these hippies are around. I don't like them. So I guess there was a bunch of vinegar valentines that you could do to insult beatniks and hippies. Hmm. After the peak of their Victorian era popularity and a brief comeback for hippie insults, they have died out and they don't really exist as a practice today. I got to bring it back because tradition. (laughs) I, for one, am glad not to have to pay money in order to be insulted anonymously through the U.S. Postal Service. I still get insulted all the time online, but I don't have to pay for the privilege. 
I just get the insults for free. You pay with your privacy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have feels about that. The next time someone reminisces about the good old days and how much more polite and civilized we used to be as a society, remind them of Vinegar Valentine's insulting messages that literally got a woman shot. There is no such thing as the good old days. Nostalgia is a lie. All we can do is keep striving to be better versions of ourselves. If you do insult somebody, do it in limerick. That's my takeaway. Well, that's not quite the takeaway I was aiming for, but sure, yes, whatever works. Knock yourself out, kid. It's more polite that way. Oh, yes. Thanks for joining us yet again for another Dirty Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed our exploration of all things love. I learned a lot. And so did I. I did enjoy your piece on the Vinegar Valentines. I might have to try that this holiday. Start sending out random cards in the mail to people I just dislike. Yes, push forth that positive energy, my friend. Heal the world. There's nobody I really dislike enough that I would take the time to... Right. Buy a card, write a poem. It's a lot of work. Send it to him in the mail. Yeah. Who has time to mail things these days? It's very time consuming. Mm. That's why we're all hanging out on the internet where you consult each other much easier. Oh, yes. In much more cruel ways with poor punctuation, bad spelling. When people take the time to reach out to me and troll me, I'm always most offended by how atrocious their spelling and grammar and punctuation is. I'm just saying. All lowercase. Wait, wait, the, not only are they insulting you, they're saying you're not even worth the time for proper punctuation. No, I think they're saying I'm the kind of idiot that's going to troll somebody online and I have no idea how to spell or what proper grammar is. I don't think that there is a large cross-section of English majors and internet trolls out there. I could be wrong. I don't know where the Venn diagram of internet trolling and (laughs) literature professors intersect, but I doubt it is very large. I've been insulted by people that have a proper grasp of punctuation and grammar. It's not as common, but they are out there. They like to get involved in very feisty philosophical debating with structured straw man ad hominem attacks. Mm Mm-hmm. All the rhetoric. Right, right. Lots of rhetoric. Oh, yes. I don't know if the listeners have got it or not, but essentially what we're trying to express with this podcast is that we don't necessarily believe the idea of love exists, especially true love or soulmates. There's plenty of people out there that you meet and you can get along with and you can develop a loving relationship with them. And essentially this feeling of love that we feel is a biological reaction to encourage us to have sex and procreate. Correct. That is why it feels good Mm -hmm. is it activates the reward centers of our brain and says, hey, you should be doing more of that. And when we're not getting those good, happy, feel good, positive chemicals, we feel like shit and it forces us to go back and do that stuff some more. And then it releases other chemicals to bond us together so that we stick around long enough to raise the offspring until they're old enough to take care of themselves. There you go. That's love. The crib notes. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. 
If you did enjoy this podcast or if you've listened to other podcasts we've done and you like what we're doing, please, I am going to throw out the podcast challenge that I do every time. And that podcast challenge is rate, recommend and review what we call around here the three Three R's. R's. So go to any platform where you subscribe to this, subscribe to the podcast, rate it, tell people about it. Do whatever you can if you appreciate what we're doing. We're working hard. We're bringing research to the table. We are. It takes hours to throw these this things is, together. There's a, this is not just two people sitting in a room talking at a microphone. There's a lot of foundation groundwork we do. In it is two people this. sitting in a room talking to microphones, but there's so much prep involved. So we much. spend hours, but it's a labor of love because we love doing this. True. And we love bringing this information. We love learning it ourselves, but then also bringing it to you, our listening public. Reminder that the podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker. We're on YouTube now and TuneIn Radio. Basically, every single platform you can think of. We're there. Yes. Join us. Finally, the last item of business. Thanking our producers. We have a great honorary producer, and that is... The most amazing, Ralph... Hansen. Rolf Hansen and his wives. So many wives. So many wives. Thank you, Rolf. If you want to be a producer as well, what you got to do is go over to either the Dirty Talk podcast Patreon page, which is patreon.com backslash Dirty Talk podcast, or you can go to Rain DeGray's Patreon page, which is patreon.com backslash Rain DeGray. You have to type it in directly because I'm a very, very naughty girl. She is blocked on there because she is the NSFW. That's me. Guilty as charged. Mm, You were put in the dirty person naughty corner. Correct. And it makes no sense to me because my Patreon is completely safe for work. Mm, Yeah, I've seen it. There's mainly cat pictures and advice columns and things. Well, I mean a tiny bit of erotica. Smidgen, just, sliver. Just a little a little sprinkling. Yeah, as a, little, a treat. A little seasoning of erotica here and there. Okay, okay, I guess maybe. I just... But go check it out for yourself and see what she's got going on over at her Patreon. <laughs> and see what we're doing at the Dirty Talk Podcast Patreon. Because every week we come out with special bonus episodes. Something we like to call Dirty Talk After, after Hours. We go on fun adventures. We have trivia challenges. We... He keeps trying to kill me. Well, no, I haven't killed you lately. Mm, it's happened a few times. You got mauled by a bear last week, but that was both of us. It wasn't me. I haven't tried to throw you off a cliff for a long time. It's almost like I'm growing on you. It's like, like a, a fungus. fungus. Jinx. <laughs> Join us for our weekly adventures on the Dirty Talk After Hours. And we also have supplemental material. We fit so much stuff into these regular podcasts, but we have usually more stuff that we come across in our research. We're just bulging with stuff. We are just full of information like an engorged leech, just waiting to spew it all up to your brain. Oh, yeah, that sounds great. I'm selling them on it here, I I sign up for that runaway screaming into the night? Run away! Yeah, come and take a listen. Uh, no leeches, I promise. No leeches, unless, well, we've talked about leeches before. No literal leeches. No literal leeches. You're no. safe from the leeches. And we won't send you any leeches in the mail. 
I guess it's time to wrap this. Wrap somehow. it. Just okay. Let's, let's just put a bow on it, like a like an old Christmas get present. Get ourselves out Turn of this hole that we've dug Goodbye. ourselves Goodbye. I tell you, we. What do you mean, we, buddy? All right, I'm jaunty salute. You. Goodbye. Jaunty, jaunty salute. Over and out, my friends. Talk to you next time. <laughs>